0: this is your profanity warning you're warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast if there are children in the room in the house or indeed within a five mile radius please send them away this podcast is not for us is that good yeah it was great that was perfect okay Okay. grave robbing in texas is this hour's top news story an informant led officers of the muerto county sheriff's department to a cemetery just outside the small rural texas community of newt early this morning
1: officers there discovered what appeared to be a grisly work of art the remains of a badly decomposed body wired to a large monument
0: Coming to you live from the recent past in New York City, where we hang skulls from the ceiling and throw human teeth at each other. Welcome to 21 Jump Scare. I'm Bradford Lorick, And I'm Eric Winnick. 21 Jump Scare is a podcast about horror films
1: told from several points of view. We call this podcast 21 Jump Scare because at least for now our plan is to only produce 21 of them. Or, but
0: also because, as in a certain TV series from the late 80s, one of us is going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And this neophyte will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet.
1: As assigned by a true horror aficionado, which is to say, you, Bradford. So oh, well, thank each, you, Eric. You're welcome. So each week we bring you a film from the perspective of someone re-watching it and from the point of view of somebody experiencing it for the first time. So now let us turn to this week's film, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
0: What happened was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America.
1: August 18th, 1973. Siblings Sally and Franklin Hardesty are driving through rural Texas in a van with their friends Kirk, Jerry, and Pam on their way to a graveyard where, it has been reported, someone has been digging up corpses and arranging them
0: like topiary. Sally and Franklin have to make sure that their grandfather's corpse was not
1: unearthed and turned into sculpture at the cemetery. Satisfied that no such event has occurred, the gang hits the road again and soon picks up a hitchhiker who talks about his former job at a local slaughterhouse, shows them pictures of his handiwork, and just for fun, cuts his arm and Franklin's. After summarily dismissing the hitchhiker, the friends find that the van is quickly running out of gas. Stopping by a roadside station, they are disappointed to find the station is also out of gas and politely decline the owner's offer to stay for a barbecue meal. The gang drives on to an abandoned home where Sally and Franklin once lived, and Kirk and Pam decide to wander down to a swimming hole for a little post-road trip nookie. Distracted by the fact that the swimming hole doesn't exist, they decide to head up to a nearby house and ask the owner for a tank of gas. Unfortunately, no one seems to be home. So Kirk does what any sane person would do, which is wander into the empty house, which is filled with strange items like human bones, skulls, feathers, and all manner of skin-related end products, which are not to be confused with high-end skin products. Kirk then finds himself coming face to face (laughs)
0: <laughs> High-end skin products I
1: see what you're doing there Kirk <laughs> then finds himself Coming face-to-face with the house's primary Occupant, a sledgehammer Wielding psychopath, the likes of which Neither he nor any of the others Including film audiences Worldwide Have encountered before Excellent point, Mr. Winnick Thank you, thank you
0: swimming holes dry up in texas
1: they do they do it's a real
0: problem who knew goddamn texas heat um so eric who is in
1: this film this film stars a lot of actors you've never heard of but that's a-okay because they all deliver the goods speaking of good the
0: good guys include marilyn burns as sally alan danziger as her boyfriend jerry Ooh, Paul A. Pertain as Sally's paraplegic brother, Franklin. Terry
1: McMinn as Pam. William Vale as her boyfriend, Kirk. And then you have the crazy guys who form this sort of demented family Edwin Neal as a hitchhiker that we meet early in the film. Jim Cedo as the gas station and barbecue pit owner. And of course, Gunnar Hansen, as a character known only as Leatherface, who seems to be some kind of inbred backroads country hick, though we really don't get enough backstory to tell. Well, they are all sort
0: of inbred backroads country hicks, right? The, um, the film was directed by Toby Hooper and written by Hooper and Kim Henkel. And this was Toby Hooper's breakthrough film, and afterwards he went on to direct the TV miniseries of Salem's Lot, oh. uh, which I know has a very special place in your heart, Eric, oh. um, as well as Poltergeist and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. Did you see that the sequel? I I did. I in fact mm-hmm. I saw the sequel before I saw the original. Okay, that makes no sense, Eric. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is is one of those movies that. I was nervous to see. It has such a reputation for being this like h- outrageously visceral, gory experience. And I I remember when my dad rented the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on VHS. It was one of two horror films that I was not allowed to watch when I was a kid. So you saw the sequel instead? I saw the sequel instead, which is quite frankly, it's like a, a much... Um, tamer and quite comedic film. I, it is not a spiritual sequel to the film, it's like a sequel in name only. It's as if a completely different uh group of artists got together to make it.
1: Okay, so how'd this film do, Bradford?
0: Well, this film was made for the princely sum of about three hundred thousand dollars and wound <laughs> up grossing thirty point eight million
1: in the US, which is not a bad haul. So our pal Roger Ebert said, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is as violent and gruesome and blood soaked as the title promises, a real grand guignol of a movie. It's also without any apparent purpose, unless the creation of disgust and fright is a purpose. And yet in its own way, the movie is some kind of weird off the wall achievement. I can't imagine why anyone would want to make a movie like this, and yet it's well-made, well-acted, and all too effective, And Well,
0: gullible as ever, Raj went on to say, the movie's based on factual material, (laughs) according to the narration that opens it. (laughs) For all I know, that's true, although I can't recall having heard of these particular crimes, Mm -hmm. and the distributor provides no documentation. Oh, Raj. So now it's time that we'd like to issue a full
1: spoiler alert. Yes, we will be spoiling this film completely and utterly from here on in. If you have not seen this film and you plan to, please watch the film. Make sure you have a good stiff drink then come back and listen to the rest of this episode. So, Bradford, um, talk to me. How did you first hear about this film and where did you see it?
0: I have just always kind of been aware of this film, Do you know, ever since I was a little kid. And like I said, um, there were very few films that I was not allowed to watch. My dad would take me to the video store every weekend and I would pick out whatever R-rated horror shit I wanted to see and it was always okay. Um, I I had very little limitation on what I could watch.
1: Yeah, clearly. Um,
0: But The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of the two films that I was not ever allowed to watch. The second being The Silence of the Lambs.
1: Unbelievable. And I was
0: was much older when The Silence of the Lambs came out. My mother thought it would be a much better idea to give me the book instead of letting me see the movie. Good idea, Mom. Yep. Yeah. So that said because I was such a voracious little aficionado of the genre from the very beginning, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of those things that I just was always aware of. I remember seeing the video box in the store, but knowing that there was something about it that I I wasn't supposed to know, you know? And so it probably wasn't until I was in college on a summer break that I actually saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I I rented it with a very good friend of mine at the time at home during the summer, we rented it and we watched it. And uh, I I don't think I'll ever forget the first time I saw it. And it was not under any kind of ideal circumstances. I was watching it on VHS on a little television in my bedroom at home at my parents' house. Uh, And I mean, it still managed
1: to make a serious impression. I mean, I've been hearing about this film for years. I I, when I first heard about it, I I said to myself, you know, I wasn't into horror films, but I said to myself, that is a film I will never, ever see. And now you have. And now I have. Um, Why did you choose this film for me to see, Professor?
0: I mean, it should be obvious, Mr. Winnick. It is a genre defining classic. I mean, it is, uh, I mean, it it kicks off the slasher horror film subgenre, really. Um, Although, you know, I think some would classify it more as a folk horror film. But I mean, it certainly does allow an entree for the Jason Voorhees and the Freddy Kruegers and the Michael Myers.
1: I, you know, now having seen it, find that very curious. Um, Do you think it's something that kind of crosses the line or sort of, do you think it's something that sort of straddles the genres?
0: I mean, I suppose, you know, if something like Deliverance is folk horror, then this is too, Mm. you know? But this Mm -hmm. just goes that much further. Mm. This introduces power
1: tools. (laughs) True, Uh, true, but but that, but doesn't, that kind of make it a slasher i mean i mean that's sort of what well i think that's t- why it's hard to categorize these yeah yeah but eric
0: you were seeing this classic film for the very first time so what did you think of this film sir
1: well i have to say that as as we were just saying its reputation does precede it and so for years i was you know the film is called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, you know, what, what is, you know, is there much room for guesswork there? Um, What does that
0: conjure, you
1: know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I had, but I had also heard more recently that one thing that, that surprised people who saw this film after hearing so much about it is how little gore there really is in it. And, um, it is kind of remarkable when you watch it, um, how much is really left to the imagination. And I don't know if that was done for artistic or budgetary purposes, I suspect the latter, but at the same (laughs) time, it is still very effective. Well, Um, you know
0: that Toby Hooper intended this thing to have a PG rating. And I think that's yeah. why the gore was kept to the minimum that it was.
1: Right, right, right. There was no way in hell that this was going to be a PG film. No, not at all. Not at all. They're lucky although, they got an R. Although we also have to remember that the original title of this film was Leatherface. And you know this if you, I mean, you really only know this if you watch any number of behind the scenes making of documentaries where you see the clapboard and it says quite clearly... Leatherface. And um, so you have to hand it to whomever it was, be it Hooper or the marketing executive at whatever mafia run distribution distribution company. Was, company right. <laughs> right. Who came, who said, no, 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 no. We're going to call it the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When you think about it, one of the most brilliant marketing decisions in the history of film. A thousand percent. Absolutely. And so the thing is, is that I think what struck me was, how um i don't want to say tame because it's not tame but it's just not it's not as stomach churning as you think it's going to be um it's also well not for not for reasons of gore well right but also how funny it is um there are moments i will just say when watching this film and i can't say this of all the films we've watched where i had to pause the movie, and go back and just just sit and look at a frame um, for a minute, because either the composition or the moment or just something about what was going on struck me as as so ridiculous and horrifying at the same time um, that it was remarkable to me how a film could be this funny and this fucking off the wall at the same time. You know, it's like, we'll get into it later, but the dinner scene, um, and I don't want to get too much into it now, but it's just, so I will just say that, that I was impressed by the fact that um, it was able to do so many things at the same time. And, and, you know, it's not a film you admire for its plot. It's not a film you admire for its writing. It's not even a film you admire for its acting. It's a film you admire for its audacity, and that's where that's what I'll say about it. I I totally appreciate that, um, and I mean, do
0: you sort of take away any of the the sort of political discourse that that Hooper and Henkel were attempting to bring to this film?
1: No, okay. and it may be just because I haven't either watched enough about it or it's only been a couple of days since I've seen it. I just haven't read that much into it. You know, I haven't, um, I mean, it is, uh, contextually, and I
0: don't want to go too deep into this, but, uh, it it is meant to sort of be a response to the Vietnam war Mm -hmm. to Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal and to Ford's pardoning of Nixon. Oh, interesting. The, the, the collision of all of these things, the filmmakers were were sort of responding to the mm-hmm. senselessness and the horror of the world in which they were living. And this was yeah. their artistic response yeah. to the context, you know, the, the sort of like geopolitical global context in which the film was made.
1: Well, you sort of get that in the beginning when you listen to the announcer on the radio yes um talking about all the crazy shit that's going on in the world and mm-hmm. there's i'm i can't remember everything but there's they mentioned the grave robbing they mentioned there's somebody a suicide suicide exactly mm-hmm. there's some mass explosion that kills people at a plant right. somewhere and it's just it's just one atrocity after another and it's right it it is I mean, you know, it's sad, but at the same time, it's like, it's funny because it's just like, it just, it just keeps going, you know, Um, you know, again, that's like another thing about this film. That's just, you just don't expect how funny it's going to be. I want to talk about three scenes in particular, and and you can bring up whatever you want, but I want to talk about three scenes that to me feel kind of emblematic of the film's approach. I mean, are Um, these, are, are,
0: are are you singling these out as your favorite scenes in the film?
1: No, I should say these scenes strike me as illustrative of what works well about the film. In other words, that I think embody Hooper's intent to some extent, at least as it struck me. Take Um, it away. So the first one is, we'll just call it the dismemberment of Kirk in (laughs) front of Pam. Uh Um, The next one is the dinner scene. And then the very end scene which is the sort of chaotic chase into the street at the end. Let's, let's go to the dinner scene. I'm curious as to your thoughts about this. Um, this, this scene takes place sort of late in the film. Um, Sally is the only one left really of, of the original group.
0: Yeah, the the rest of the, uh, you know, the rest of the folks in the mystery machine have already been dispatched.
1: Yeah, that's right. Velma's gone. Scooby's gone. Mm -hmm. Shaggy's gone. (laughs) Fred, they're all gone. Good, good, good comparison there. Um, And the hitchhiker whom we have met at the beginning of the film, they pick him up for God knows what reason, um, is back because he's made his way to the house. He's a member of the family. He's apparently... Leatherface's brother and the old man who is only identified as the old man from the gas station is there as well. He has abducted Sally and brought her to the house and they form a kind of Leatherface and the hitchhiker and the old man form a kind of a weird family. Um, right. Leatherface is wearing a wig at this point. Um well- Is Leatherface wearing
0: a wig or is that hair that's attached to somebody else's head? I I don't know. I
1: thought it was was like a wig. It could have been been somebody's actual hair, for all we know. The hitchhiker feels like the sun... The old man is the father who keeps chastising the kids for screwing stuff up. We don't know what that is, but he's just like, right. you damn fools, you screwed it up again. It's like, yeah, what What did they screw up? Uh, they screwed
0: up the abduction and murder and, and processing into food of this group of, uh, you know, hapless uh, well,
1: travelers. Right. They, well, I mean, I don't know. It seems like they did successfully capture. They captured Franklin. They captured... Mm. Pam, Pam they captured Kirk and they captured Jerry so, right. so they've got four of them Right. Um, so Sally's the one that remains so maybe he's mad that they sc- didn't kill her I, or she's still alive um, unclear but anyway it's funny because you don't expect to see the chainsaw wielding maniac being chastised for being a bad boy right. um, so it's, it's almost like you know he seems truly uh, remorseful that he did something wrong even though he's totally
0: ashamed right he's totally yeah. ashamed
1: he doesn't speak of course there's no language that comes out of his mouth but the old man is he's upset with him somehow right. for doing something and again there's two moments here where i just have to stop the movie and, and say what in the name of all that's holy and it's there's the first moments when sally's finger is sliced open and then placed in the mouth of a grandpa grandpa who is a dead man well he's not well but is he i mean that's i wanted to ask you about that because it seems like he's like a puppet that they've animated they've taken a corpse somehow and he, they put sally's finger in his mouth and it's not clear whether he's moving or they're moving him to make it seem like he's alive and sort of you know reanimating somehow what right. was your take on that
0: no, he's alive. He's, uh, he's very old and, and absolutely enfeebled. But when we meet Grandpa for the first time, it's when Sally is, uh, is running from Leatherface uh, through the house. Um, she runs up the stairs and into the attic where uh, she encounters a room full of taxidermy, including Grandma, but grandpa is still alive. Okay, that um, wasn't and- that
1: wasn't clear to me because they're yeah. sitting they're pretty inert. I mean, you know. And Oh, absolutely. I, and I wasn't even clear that he was alive during the dinner scene because Right. He doesn't move a lot. He doesn't really say much and the thing well, he doesn't say anything. And when I saw him move when they put mm-hmm. Sally's finger in his mouth and then I didn't see him move later. I thought to myself, well, they must have been sort of moving him in a, in a sense of sort of willing him alive somehow.
0: No, I mean, uh, I, I do love that sort of idea, but no, Grandpa, I, I, I think, or rather, I've always understood Grandpa to be alive. Mm-hmm. Um, very old, very... Uh, again, enfeebled, but he's alive, you know? And when they slit Sally's finger and put the blood in his mouth, he suckles from her finger. And uh, I don't know whether it's the blood the life force you know the the metaphorical uh exchange that uh that sort of restores him uh or or what i mean and it's not like um you know it's not it's not like watching dracula right i mean it's not like he becomes a young man when he uh when he drinks her blood but i think the taste of human blood in this family of cannibals is enough to um to sort of give him a, a little, a little bit of, uh, of
1: a boost. Right. I guess. I mean, then, I, again, I, I think that the issue was, it wasn't clear to me that he was alive. Right. Um, but I can certainly now that you mention it sort of see how he could be earlier when I was describing the scene, you know, I think I said there's a dead man at the head of, at the, the, head table. of the table, but because I mean, the he tru- does appear to be,
0: yeah, he does. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, during the dinner scene, and, and I think it's, I, I think there, there is uh, a lot to talk about in the dinner scene, but um, as they're talking about Grandpa, they're talking about how he was the fastest at the slaughterhouse. Yep. You know, he could dispatch the greatest number of cattle in the shortest number of time. And he didn't use and that he damn did it, air gun. Right. He did it with a hammer. Yep, and so they put the
1: hammer in Grandpa's hand. Okay, we, this is where right? I right, but I this is this, the next part that I was going to mention, which was all right. Go on. This this moment where Sally's head is kind of forced. Well, Sally herself is sort of forced into this metal basin with her head mm-hmm. down, and a hammer is placed in Grandpa's hand. And right. what's crazy is that try as he may, he can't seem to hit Sally's head, which right. is like a moment of pure slapstick that Kinda. Should, be, should be absolutely horrifying. But right. it's just like, it's funny because it's like, he can't hit her.
0: And, you know, the the hammer. It. Seems... It's not because
1: he doesn't want to, it's because he misses.
0: Right. Well, the, the hammer seems to be too heavy for him to wield at this point. <laughs> they keep picking it up out of the, you know, the, right. the metal bucket and putting it back in his hand. Yeah. He does, of course, land one blow. And I think that Ooh. moment when he lands the blow is pretty uh, extraordinary. Right. Because, I mean, it, it kind of undercuts all of that, all of those humorous attempts leading up to it. Right. But does he really get her? I I mean, he gets her. He gets her. I mean, because
1: she, she she gets out of there pretty quickly after it. She crashes through the window, um, lands on the ground. It's daylight, which that that moment is crazy because you're like, yeah, it's daytime. Um, but anyway, how long la- has that dinner been? Exactly. Well, how or how long was she out before it? Right. But the thing is, yeah, I I wasn't honestly. Again, this is like you've seen this film more times than I have, but it wasn't clear to me that he had landed the blow because if he had, it doesn't seem like she could have moved that quickly to get out of there. Well, there Um, wasn't a whole lot of power behind it, but it does land a good hit. Yeah. So again, that, that scene is, it's pretty extraordinary when you think about it and the composition, the way it's shot is from her point of view. So you've got hitchhiker on the left and then you've got dad, I'm sorry. Yeah, I keep thinking of his dad. The old man. He maybe. His I mean, he's probably
0: dad and cousin and maybe brother. That's and, true. I mean, they're an inbred redneck yeah. cannibal family. So, as you do. Sure. Yeah,
1: sure. Um, but yeah, the, the, keep going with composition. Sort of, the, sort of the modern day Republican Party. But anyway, right. um, the uh, across the table is, is Leatherface and um, I don't remember. Does he bring in the food? Well,
0: at that point, Leatherface is wearing one of his three leather faces. Okay, uh, and, and he's wearing the 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 head skin of a woman. At yeah, this he point. seems and he's yes, right. Which I, I think it's kind of fascinating to watch how the mask that he chooses to wear yep. influences his behavior his yep. role in the family his role he is, in the
1: house exactly he's feminized
0: yeah, at that he's point he's feminized he's wearing an apron right uh, yes, and there's a, yes. i mean there's a moment where you see him putting lipstick on the mask i mean he mm. he is kind of playing the the like the f- female mother figure yes you know providing food for the family at, around the dinner table right That's so right. I mean, it's this That's like right. very perverse kind of Norman Rockwell scene yeah um that just happens to feature you know like a, a plateau on the table with a chicken's head on top of it and chicken feet holding it up I mean mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. all of these like revolting revulsive kinds of um set pieces and and props that have been put together for this film Uh, but I mean it really is kind of like a perversion of you know like that classic American dinner scene
1: again when we talk about scenes that that sort of, you know, typify this film. That sort of sum up what this film is is doing. Um, the the end scene is so chaotic; uh, it's such a mess, but it's also loads of fun to watch because so many things happen in rapid succession. Sure. In this scene, so Sally escapes from the house. She runs down the driveway. The hitchhiker slash son is in pursuit of her. She runs out to the street. The hitchhiker is in the street. You know, an 18-wheeler comes Mm -hmm. barreling Barreling along along. (laughs) through the street and absolutely mows down the hitchhiker. At that point, Leatherface comes running out and... The Well, Leatherface has also been giving chase the whole time. Yes. And then the truck driver, this I didn't understand at all. The truck driver and Sally run into the cab of the truck. but instead of driving away, they get chased through the cab. by. Leatherface. The, by Leatherface to the mm. other side of it. The truck driver throws a wrench at Leatherface. Uh, Which knocks him down. Um, Causing him to drop the chainsaw on on his his own own leg. leg. Right. The truck driver disappears from shot completely. A pickup truck comes along. Mm -hmm. Um, Sally jumps in the back. Leatherface still in pursuit. And the truck speeds off to God knows where. And She's laughing her head off because. Covered in blood. She's the final girl. Or she's mm-hmm. the, because she's the first final girl in the history of horror films. Uh-huh. But also because apparently they had to reshoot the scene, and she was just dead tired. Um, and of course, Leatherface starts doing this dance with his chainsaw. Absolutely gorgeous sunrise behind him. It's kind of beautiful. And it's it's this iconic moment, I guess, that has nothing to do with anything. There's no reason him to start exulting and dancing. I mean, he just <laughs> lost his, his prey. I mean, she's gone. We don't know where she's going. We don't know what becomes of her, but doesn't matter because at that point, Leatherface is dancing with his chainsaw in the air, and then it just cuts to black. And then the credits roll. It's really abrupt and really kind of weird the way this film ends. What do you make of that ending? well uh
0: i i think there are a couple of things you know i mean there's like the there's a a quote about you know when when words are not powerful enough to express a feeling you sing right and when uh when a song is not powerful enough to express a feeling you dance right um leatherface really has no capacity for speech um I, I think he's modern dancing his feelings in front of the sunrise uh, I think that you know it's his um, it's his frustration it's his rage uh, and, and I think it all comes out in this very strange movement where it's it's this guy with this extension of him uh, you know just, um, god expressing all of these emotions on the highway uh you know he's he's just sawn into his own flesh he's lost his prey uh when he gets back at home you know Daddy is probably not going to be too pleased with him. No, his Daddy brother, the hitchhiker, be. is dead. Yep. Um, what What is there to do? Right? He's got to sort of express all of this in some
1: way. He shows it by dancing with his chainsaw. So you're um, saying uh, it's not joy? It's not a dance of joy. It's a dance of just expressing some emotion, whatever. That well, I mean, I think
0: it's I think it's a collision of emotions, right? I mean, what what, what is there to be
1: joyful about? In this moment, for Leatherface, there's something very um, there's like exaltation in it to me. It just seems like it, almost like he's doing like a ballet. It's like he's he's pirouetting, you know. With this. well, I mean,
0: it, I I wouldn't say that it's not balletic, but I don't know that it's uh, I don't know that it's like a a happy um, dance, you know. But yeah, um, yeah. with the uh, with the cut to black, I mean, I think it. Uh, I think, like so many aspects of this film, there's a kind of verite quality to it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't knit itself up neatly at the conclusion. It just ends, right, yeah. much like yeah. it begins.
1: Is anybody home? Hello. Okay, I want to talk about the production design for a second because that house is so freaky and (laughs) I saw an interview with Robert A. Burns, the production designer Mm -hmm. um, who, I don't know if you saw the same making of documentary as me, but there's one in which he has two life-size dolls standing behind him that are clothed in these ruffles and it's it's you don't see the whole dolls but you see enough of them to know that there's this guy's got some things going on um in his house and anyway he talks about how they would just go to collect dead things um because farmers didn't often have ways of getting rid of their dead animals that they would bring them to a corner of the field and just let them decompose. Um, And roadkill. I mean, the armadillo. The armadillo. Yeah. Yeah. And so this house is full of skulls of people and animals and there's, there's things hanging from the ceiling. I mean, there's, there's tons of, of decoration going on and, you know, it's a lot of this we've we've we see in subsequent films you know buffalo bill in silence of the lambs see john
0: doe i mean right we the 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 kind of stuff that fincher does throughout the entirety of seven and a, a lot of it owes to the texas Chainsaw massacre the american... level of filth and
1: yeah yeah an american horror story um oh, asylum sure. asylum season two the therapist played by zachary quinto Quinto. zachary quinto not to spoil that too much but let's just say that that he takes a cue from all of this as well at the very sure. end um but and of course
0: it, eric i mean it, it, burns uh takes a cue from
1: from real life from well, Ed Gein from ed gein and that's this is kind of where we have to talk about ed gein i suppose yeah i, I would say this film is sort of very loosely based on Ed Gein. I think that there is some. The house may be more based on Ed Gein than the character. Yes, yeah. Right? There's uh,
0: there's there's a little bit of um, connective tissue, one might say. Mm. No pun intended. Or no pun intended. pun intended. Is this
1: the point in the podcast where you say the house is a character, Bradford? No, it's not. I mean. Okay. <laughs>
0: Uh, the the house is a, a filthy, disgusting environment. I don't think it's, a. I, I wouldn't say it's a character in the film, you know?
1: Um, Although the point where Pam goes sprawling into the room full of feathers, the, the floor is like knee-deep in feathers. And well, there's just... a chicken
0: and a fucking birdcage in the <laughs> kitchen.
1: <laughs> there is.
0: And there are meat hooks hanging from the ceiling, and there yeah. are pieces of furniture uh, yeah. that are just assemblages of human and animal bone and I,
1: sinew. You know what, there, there's a i don't know what to call it it's like a love seat i guess it's it's a couch it's a a settee it's beautiful It's bovine
0: bones. It's oh. crowned with a human skull. Beautiful. I mean, you know, uh, and quite honestly, there there are very expensive pieces of furniture that you can buy that are made out of um mm-hmm. out of steer horns mm-hmm. and things like that. Do yep. you know? Uh, well, and, when- and other kinds of antlers and 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 bones. And quite frankly, in in his home in Beverly Hills, Vincent Price had human skeleton chairs. They were carved wood mm. to look mm-hmm. like human skeletons. But I mean, there is a there there is a a, a long history of using those kinds of materials, those kinds
1: of motifs in interior design. The chair that Sally is seated in at dinner, she's got her hands on top of hands, hands, skeleton hands. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like at several points, I had to look and I'm like, why are there? four sets of hands. And then right. I realized like oh those Sally's hands on top of skeleton right. hands. And I was like that's genius.
0: I mean the entire production design contributes to this overall feeling mm-hmm. of of like greasy filth.
1: It's not like the van is anything really something? It's not like the gas station is really much. It's no, not it's like the. the house. It's not like the. Well, the original house that they grew up in is just kind of like a deserted old house. It's the An old kind of Blair Witch Project tumble down. What do down. they call it? The Franklin House. Yeah, there's because there's a, the house that they originally go in. Kirk and and Pam, and then he sees the other house. Right. Um, well, it's
0: Sally and and Franklin's grandfather's homestead.
1: Right. Yes. yes. Thank you. That's the original
0: house, and then and it probably would have been a very lovely home if it had not been in such tumble down condition, right? Right. And then they go to the, the Leatherface's house, Cannibal yes. family's home.
1: Right. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, exactly. <sighs> so, but that seems to be where they poured the the majority of the budget into was making sure this house just absolutely was a chamber of horrors in every yes, way. Yes, and it was. It was, which may have just in a way, contributed to the mystique and the legacy of this film in a big way. Um, Just the story behind it. It's very rare that the story behind a film is almost as important as the film itself. Um, I mean, I
0: don't know how they ever got this, the stink of the filthy roadhouse whiskey out of that house, do you know what I mean? So what, what is the takeaway for you? I mean, you know, so it, it, we're, we're talking about all of these scenes and these moments. I mean, did you
1: like the movie? Did it did it scare you? I mean, my answer to this is going to be the same as as every other film. I mean, it's just I experience them differently now than I would have when I was a kid. And it's just it really I hate to say it because it sounds Like I've just lost all joy in life, but it really takes a lot to freak me out. You know, I watch, I've watched all these films. I've, I'm still watching horror films on my own or television. And it takes a lot to really creep me out. And another time we can talk about those moments that I can honestly say, I was terrified by a movie, but it's been a while. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was not terrified by this film. I was not really scared by this film. I was just kind of amazed by it. Uh-huh. You know, so again as I said, you know, I admire it for its audacity. Uh-huh. I admire it for what it achieves. What does it achieve?
0: What is it what is your what does it leave you with at the end? I don't know. I mean, is it is it purely <laughs> that they were able to do it as this sort of the ultimate story of the ultimate indie film where it's made for so little money? Uh, and it and it cleans up in the global box office. Sure, or what?
1: Sure, let's let's say that. I mean, the thing is, is that I think that you know, for a film that so you you're spend... applauding, Henkel and Hooper's entrepreneurialism. Absolutely. <laughs> a- well, I mean, they got hoodwinked in a big way, didn't they? Yeah, so I don't know how they, entre- they may have been entrepreneurial, mom. but they were. By the end, they were didn't really take much away themselves, but. I, guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess for a film that you spend such a, a period of your life fearing to come away feeling like, okay, I can I can watch this now. And not only can I watch it, but I can appreciate it uh, as an artistic achievement. I don't know. It kind of feels like in a way you, you know, I wish that I had seen it at an age where I could have really been truly scared by it. I can appreciate on one sense how horrifying sally's experience is and she Mm -hmm. certainly screams enough to make us convinced that she's terrified but at the same time this sort of meta commentary is going in your head where you're like oh that's funny oh i see what they're doing there okay um oh yeah okay great oh though that production design is fantastic or oh oh my god he can't hit her with a hammer you know or just like when pam is hung up on the meat hook you're like oh i thought this is going to be so i mean it's terrible obviously but it's so it could have been so much worse you could have seen right. the book go into her back you don't so at the same time you're going wow they really that was really effective so there's kind of meta commentary is going on in your head while you're watching the film that i don't want to say takes away from your appreciation but makes it more of a clinical exercise but than- i mean
0: is let, let's go let's explore that just a little bit more uh for me, I wouldn't call it so much meta commentary as I would call it sort of a relentless verite experience, right? I mean, you're not seeing, uh, you know, it's not storyboarded to death, like, um, you know, like a a contemporary, like, like Michael Bay's remake was, you know, where you do see all of those things happen, right? I mean, it's like, you're sort of like, um, a captive observer of everything that's going on around you. And I do think that it's one of those rare film experiences, maybe kind of like the Human Centipede 2, where, I mean, you really do just feel like sweaty, hot, greasy, and filthy after you've watched the film, or at least I do. And that's the part of it that, um, you know, I've seen this film remarkably few times and every time I see it, I always sort of come away with, I don't need to do that again.
1: Or I don't need to
0: do that again for a while.
1: I think the last film that I saw where I felt like, I don't know where this is going, but every time it gets dark in this film. I know something is going to scare the shit out of me. Uh Uh-huh. Was the original Blair Witch Project, which I saw at the Angelica Film Center when Uh it came out. And that was maybe the scariest film experience I've ever had.
0: Well, sure. I mean, on a big screen with great sound, in a it, having a collective experience with an yeah. audience full of people, and the subway you know?
1: rumbling underneath. You know, it's, sure, it really was. But it was more than that. It was the sense that, like, I don't know where this film is going. I don't know uh-huh. where it's going to take me. But where it where it is taking me is to a terrifying place, and it just gets more terrifying until that final moment of, and you know what I'm talking about. Where of course. just like it's it just comes to a climax and then it ends like that and you're just like you just can't get up you're just frozen in your seat for a while like it's right. been a while since I felt that way and maybe it is watching it in my house but um I have had experiences also where I'm I'm watching a film at home and I will be truly captivated by it and disturbed uh-huh. by it and um you know I don't Again, I don't want to be disparaging or I don't want to offend you in any way by saying that these films are not terrifying me. I you know, I don't want to I don't there, want to make there's you There's no way to coarse... capture
0: the experience, no, you know. I mean, there's I know, no way to recreate the experience of like seeing it with an audience yeah. in a theater, you yeah. know. Yeah. I mean, I I have seen a million horror films. I've seen m- the great majority of those at home, you yeah. know. I mean, yeah. or or with friends. But there, there are on a, on a I can count on one hand the number of horror movie experiences that I've found truly terrifying, mm-hmm. and they have all been because of that sort of collective experience uh, in a crowded movie theater late at night mm-hmm. in the dark on mm-hmm. a huge screen. Right, um, you know things like The Descent or The Strangers or. Mm-hmm paranormal activity you know things that you that i have re-watched like paranormal activity at home in the afternoon and it, it it is utterly denuded of its power yeah you know but when you have that experience and i don't know that texas chainsaw massacre would be that thing you know i mean i think some of the acting specifically Paul partains is
1: like terrible, you know, I mean, or or annoying to the point of distraction. Right. But at the Um, same time, it's like, this is the slasher that launched a thousand slasher films when you think about it, you know? So it's like, there are elements to this, including, you know, the final girl that we've seen again and again in subsequent films. And so maybe to some extent, it's like because of the influence of this film watching the original is denuded of its impact in a way. I think
0: some of the low budget shows through at times. I also think that it's ultimately kind of a very thin story. You know, you don't particularly care for any of the characters. There's very little emotional investment on your part as an audience member with the uh, characters or the actors. Um, And, and, you know, it's a relatively sort of, compressed timeline yeah in, in which the entire sort of narrative occurs right 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 um you know I, when we talk about scenes in this movie i think it's a hard movie to sort of break scenes out of because it's at, after a certain point it's kind of just continuous action it's all chase you know um it's like chase and capture and chase and capture and it's ultimately the same character sally marilyn burns who's caught and released and caught and released and caught and released ad nauseum throughout the universe you know you know i don't know if it's it's sort of just uh a very particular kind of time capsule um and and i don't know if if seeing this in the cinema as an adult in 2021 i would find this film to be particularly scary i would still find it deeply unpleasant mm. um but not i i don't think i would find it scary but right. i think a lot of the power of it is to kind of get under your skin and i think it successfully does that so to speak yes yeah, so to speak <laughs> it's going to
1: be a fun trip
0: (laughs) if i have any more fun today i don't think i'm going to be able to take it
1: we have to talk about franklin we have to talk about Franklin. we have to talk about franklin a couple questions I have for you. So first, as nice as it is to see a character with disabilities in this film or any film, I mean, there really needs to be more representation um, in films in general. And and the fact that he, that he is a paraplegic is not really a big deal. Really, in any way, he's just a character who happens to be a paraplegic. That's um, true. There is one scene in which I feel his disability is played for laughs. And he's helped out of the van. He rolls to the side of the road with a, like a coffee can, you know, and he's clearly going to relieve himself and a truck drives by a semi drives by and the wind from the truck pushes him over and he goes rolling down a hill. And um, I don't know how it's meant to be taken, but to me, it's, it's like, you know, that the 2021 me, you know, cringes when i see that because i'm just like are they making fun of this character and and the fact is is that the portrayal of franklin he's such a whiner what do you make of this character
0: i despise this character i I can't tell if i don't enjoy how it's written or i don't enjoy what the actor has brought to the performance right um i mean from the moment we get to the the homestead of of franklin and sally's grandfather you know i mean which is essentially the the sole reason for the film right and then they go off to visit the homestead where they grew up and franklin i mean the number of times that this guy is is sort of left behind or you know can't uh, can't get himself into the same room as the rest of his friends, and you know, blows yeah. raspberries at the sky at nauseum. Yeah, nauseam, yeah. Ad well, infinitum. I think there's
1: there's meant to be. I mean, I don't think he's just physically challenged. You know, I think he's he also is incredibly kind in a way to the hitchhiker who is very clearly deranged. And the thing is, is that you the others are all like watching in horror as he's having this conversation about the slaughterhouse and the air gun and stuff like that. And, and you think that, that anybody who is of, you know, of more sound mind would instantly get this guy was this hitchhiker is insane.
0: Oh, I mean, I think that the entire van full of, uh, you know, friends are, are being exceptionally careful with how they're treating the hitchhiker. I think from the moment where he cuts his hand, uh, yeah. when he gets into the van, everyone is sort of on high alert,
1: right? But and the are thing being is, being
0: very cautious about how they engage with him.
1: Exactly, and it's a wonder that they just don't expel him at that point. But 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 it's Franklin. That has the conversation with him and that almost gets along with him. They kind of talk about working in the slaughterhouse and how, yeah, you but know- I mean,
0: if we're if, if we're suggesting that like Franklin is a little soft boiled in addition to being a paraplegic like that's not the case. I don't think that's the case. Okay. I, I think Franklin is perfectly compass. I mean, it may be my interpretation. I think Franklin is perfectly compass meant is I think he's an asshole. If I okay. were his friends, I would not want to be pushing him around either. You okay. know?
1: Yep. So my next question is really about the mythology of this film. And there is this opening crawl slash monologue voiced by John La Roquette. Interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, night courts, courts and John Jean- La Roquette. Which seems to posit this was all a true story taking place on August 18th, 1973, which strangely enough, was also my parents' 11th wedding anniversary. Whoa. whoa. So talk to me about truth and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
0: Well, I would suggest that there's more operating as, as uh, connects to Ed Gein than, um, than simply uh, the masks. We know that Ed Gein made uh, household objects and uh, other items of clothing uh, out of the, the skins of the bodies that he would dig up from the cemetery or the the few occasions on which he murdered someone. And of course, you know, Gene also ate some of what he uh, what he acquired as well. So I mean, the the sort of cannibalism, the the use of the human materials in the the building of furniture and making of lampshades, things like that. I mean, that that is all drawn fairly uh, straight from Ed Gein's story. But right. I think. F- you know the entire history of film is is populated with with projects that purport to be ripped from headlines or based on true stories um when in fact very often it's a a a a tiny narrative thread that's used as a point of inspiration
1: and the winner is Well, the time has come.
0: Well, now it's time for the awards segment of our show. My favorite segment. In which we give out prizes for the scenes and
1: characters that we think make this such a memorable film. Or not. Let's start with most disturbing scene. Uh, This is the Tom Six Award. um, Uh Named for the erstwhile auteur behind the human centipede uh, Franchise, c- cinematic universe. Uh-huh. Um,
0: who do you got? I think the most disturbing scene may be the scene with the hitchhiker in the van,
1: mm. um,
0: because is, that
1: is disturbing. You're right.
0: Right. I mean, every uh, you know, every uh, character is sort of. Hackles are up because of the hitchhiker, and I think that translates to the audience as well. Um, what, what, who, to, to which scene would you give the Tom Six Award, Mr. Winnick?
1: Well, um, I'm I'm gonna just be utterly predictable here and say the dinner scene. Um, and the attempted bludgeoning that doesn't happen. I think the reason it's disturbing to me is because you are sort of become, you become Sally, it's from her point of view. And there's a doominess and a hopelessness to that situation that feels like, you know, if you were ever in that situation, you would just be, you're dead. And all you're thinking is you're dead and you're gonna go in the worst possible way. Horrible inside. Let's move on to the uh, a, a, a bit of a lighter tone here. The most likable character, the Seth Brundle Award, named for our our buddy Jeff Goldblum uh, in The Fly. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, Bradford. Is there a most likable character in this film?
0: It's really hard. I, I mean, know, isn't it? I think I I mean I think I have to give it to Marilyn Burns. Wow. But. I think mm-hmm. it's really tough to find a likable character in this film. There's nothing. There's nothing particularly wrong with any of the 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 gang in the Mystery Machine, but um, they're a little know, colorless. They are a little one um, D. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Marilyn Burns, uh, her, you know, her Sally is, is like the prototypical final girl. Um, and so I think I'm going to be very woman first and make her my most likable character and give her my Seth Brundle award.
1: Although she's not, she's not plucky, you know, in, in the sense that like, like, um, like, I Nancy. don't think she has to be. Well, no, it's, but when you think about final girls, you think about like Nancy and nightmare on Elm street and she's, she's at least resourceful, you know, or yeah. fool in um, people under the stairs, you know, you sure. have, you, you think of those characters and you think that, well, at least they've got something on the the bad guys.
0: There's a quality of heroism about. Yeah, them, Ma- right? Ma-
1: Marilyn is just she's someone that things are done to. She's right. not someone who does things.
0: She doesn't have a lot of agency. No, but she does have adrenaline that gets her through two plate glass windows. It's true at two different points during the film. No, it's and true, and that keeps her alive until the end. Right. To whom do you give the award? Leatherface. The most likable character is Leatherface? Yep.
1: You have anything you want to say about that? <laughs> sure, I do. Um, You know, just because you're a homicidal, chainsaw-wielding maniac doesn't mean you can't be likable. Um, just because you're an inbred, redneck cannibal doesn't mean... Honestly, his intentions are so pure. He has a single purpose. He carries it out. He says what he feels, which is he doesn't even if say anything. If, even if it's just, right. you know, uh-huh. and he and he has a nice little dance at the end. I mean, what's not to like? He, you make him sound like Napoleon Dynamite. He's just, you know, he's not dancing to. What was it Chumbawamba? I don't, I don't remember what it is. He's just dancing to the music in his head and, and the music in the his head. Sounds of his chainsaw. He makes a nice supper. He brings it to the table. He dons an apron. Um and a woman's face. And a woman's face. <laughs> I just I don't know. I didn't like any of the characters in this film. This is a really hard one. So I'm I'm gonna give it to Leatherface. All right. <laughs>
0: I mean, I feel like you're giving out the most likable character award in the way that I usually give out the most likable character. That's the least
1: unlikable character, you know. Um, Uh But anyway, so speaking of, let's talk about the character who most deserved to live and doesn't, the so-called Ellen Ripley Award, named for Sigourney Weaver's character in the Alien franchise. Who do you got? I mean... I know.
0: I might have to give that one to Franklin. Oh. Paul Partain's Franklin. And for the sole reason yep. that when he's dispatched by Leatherface, it's mm-hmm. done in the dark and I didn't get to see the life leave his eyes. <laughs> I, I dislike the character so much, but I mean, you know, if, if I wasn't going to get to appreciate his being hacked to pieces, then maybe we might as well just have kept him alive.
1: Yeah. I uh-huh. concur. What about, I can, where, I can, Oh, really? Yeah, I concur. I got to say, I think it's Franklin, if only because I just, I feel bad for the guy. Um, I'm sure that the filmmakers don't want us to feel bad for him. I don't know. I don't know if the filmmakers want us to feel bad for him or not, but I think that he certainly doesn't have a great way of defending himself. And as annoying as he may be, he's at least somewhat colorful. Hey. Fine. <laughs> do you want me to say Leatherface? No, 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 it's because no, no. he does live, you know. So he, lives. he te- technically doesn't qualify well, I mean, for the award. He, I don't know if that's true,
0: and I, I don't know if I've always followed that rule when giving out the award. You know, I mean, like wow. there are certainly characters who do live who deserve to live. Right. Um, but let's talk about the character who most deserved to die. Sure. Uh, the John Doe award you you may be familiar with I'm
1: familiar with that name mm-hmm. for Kevin Spacey's, Kevin character, Spacey's in, character in 7 In 7 um you know I, if i hated anybody i mean i know you're going to say franklin but at the same time there is something incredibly creepy and skin crawling about the hitchhiker um and he does die in a spectacular way he is the least predictable character in this film because you he could just go off and do anything and he does do some surprisingly nasty things in this film and so for john doe i'm giving it to edwin neal as the hitchhiker
0: okay uh i'm gonna give my john doe award to jim cedo as the mm. old man, daddy, mm. uh, you know, I mean, I just feel like he is probably the least uh, impacted by the legacy of genetic betrayal that impacts, you know, that, that affects his uh, his inbred redneck his cannibal pro- family, his progeny his brother cousins, his <laughs> n- nephew brothers, sister lovers. Um, yeah, exactly. Brother lever hiker sheriffs. Um, <laughs> Which is a whole sub-genre of horror that we'll eventually one day get into. Please. But, um, I, I mean, I really do think that he is just the most sort of, like, sidewinding, four-flushing, oh. untrustworthy character in the film, and they should yeah. really have dispatched with him.
1: Although he's got some good-looking barbecue in that gas station, let me tell you. He is major with the barbecue. Um, I, although, you know, after you see the film, you're like, I know exactly I'm what he's cooking having, up in there. Right,
0: exactly. And somebody, and I think Franklin, eat barbecue the same
1: way again well franklin eats something and there is a well, point franklin's in the film... a fat ass well so... you know also franklin there is a point in the film where franklin kind of looks at what he's eating and it's kind of like puzzling over it um that struck me as kind of funny because it was it's you don't quite know that it's they're cannibals at that point but right. when you look back at that moment you're like mm, mm. something tastes a little funny there to frank okay here it is the most gratuitous screen moment, the Gaspar Noe slash Ken Russell award. Um, I'm going to start. And uh, again, I'm going to disappoint you. No. Yeah. It's the dance at the end. Um, and the That's reason. gratuitous? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's I'm not, you. I'm not giving it that award. Um, the most gratuitous scene is, is when Franklin rolls down the hill and tumbles out of his wheelchair because it's like that, You just that's not cool. And so to me, that is the most gratuitous moment.
0: Okay, I I will not be echoing your sentiment. I would give it to uh, the moment when Terry McMinn's character, Pam, is hoisted up and dropped onto the meat
1: hook. Oh, that's gratuitous.
0: I mean, I think I, I, again, on, I mean Bradford. I really think Are you it going depends soft upon, on me here. I think it depends upon how you're defining your terms. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think it is uh, I, I think it's a tough thing to look at. Uh-huh. Um, again, I mean it, it, uh, I think my opinion of that uh, owes a lot to that sort of verite quality of the film as a whole.
1: Can I say um, it's tough to it's tougher to think about than it is to look at.
0: Possibly.
1: Um, because but, you I mean, don't you really, see a, anything. You just, you don't just see the anything, idea. A,
0: right. It's the it's idea. It's not there. just the idea, because there's a kind of visceral sort of. Um, the the When she's dropped onto the hook, it lurches. Do you know what I mean? Like you well, see the effect of her weight on the hook and you vice see,
1: versa. That's true. And she does scream, and it's painful to listen to. Yeah.
0: And I think that if we're, you know, and of course, acknowledging the fact that there is so little stage blood spilled in the right. course of this film. Right. I mean, I do think it's, I, I think it's the most, most gratuitous screen moment.
1: You know, what's interesting is you think of films which have a lot of blood in them. You think of it, mm-hmm. sure. you think of Nightmare and- I mean, it all... have,
0: uh, it set records,
1: you know, hundreds and hundreds of gallons of blood. Well, sure. but so, so did Nightmare and so did The Shining. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about right. like the, all the blood in those films- that is spilled and how much blood could have been spilled in mm-hmm. this film and yet isn't again, maybe it was the director and producer trying to get that PG rating ridiculously absurdly enough. absurdly, but at the same time, it's just like what kind of film would this have become if, if they it were had- a wash in blood right exactly it makes you probably
0: never would have been seen anywhere quite frankly it's you're probably right
1: you're probably right because it just would have been too hard to watch i mean there's a level this film
0: had this film as it stands was banned in so many markets in so many countries around the world england for so long
1: yeah exactly
0: Uh uh-huh england australia um i mean in england based on this film, you couldn't put the word chainsaw into the title of a film without it's being completely
1: banned. And the funny thing is, is that they probably hadn't even seen the film because it's like, again, if you see the film, you're just shocked by how little gore there is in it and how much is left to the imagination. It reminded me, you know, it's it's it reminded me of the first time I saw um, Reservoir Dogs in the theater mm -hmm. and the the scene where um, the cop's ear is cut off. Tarantino keeps the camera rolling but cuts away in that moment and then cuts back uh-huh. and the ear is gone but you don't see the act that of Michael Madsen cutting the ear off the top. Really? and it's like it truly is a, a great illustration of how what you don't see sometimes is better than what you do see or The fact that you have to use your imagination sure
0: i mean it's like in in greek tragedy right the ecclema you know where the thing happens and you wheel on the tableau and you show the after but you don't show the act yep
1: yep that's right that's right well bradford well eric what a joy this has been always a a pleasure a real pleasure um thank you thank you so much for introducing me to this this wonderful story of love peace hope and redemption in in Uh, rural america in texas um well eric you
0: know i mean i i i I do what i can to to bring you uh you know as as deeply into the fold as you're willing to to i cannot
1: thank you enough and we hope you enjoyed this podcast and if you do, give us a rating on iTunes, tell your friends, subscribe. I think
0: people should also maybe check out some additional information on our website, 21jumpscare.com. Um, our theme music is by Sir Cubworth. Uh, and Bradford Lorick, by the way. Oh, I, you know, I did a little, I did, a little you did a little remixing. Listen, how, how can our audience find you online, Mr. Winnick? You can find me
1: on Twitter. You can find me on Letterboxd. You could even find me on Instagram. I don't know why you'd want to, but go ahead. Knock yourself you, out. They can
0: find you at the opening of an envelope, Eric. You can
1: find me at the OK Corral. Thanks for joining us,
0: folks. We'll see you next time at the Internet's latest address for horror, 21 Jump Scare.